The Bain Free Radio Hour. This time on the podcast, alt history gods of the Renaissance go down. Bio enhanced Cobra warriors unite. Sarah A. Hoyt on a few not so good men and her own secret origins. Plus, neuroscientist Dr. Ted Roberts, Viking expert and author Lars Walker on why the Vikings television series kind of sucks, and David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 2, all right now. Welcome, everyone. We have with us today Bain Editor Jim Mintz. Hi, Jim. Hey, everybody. Bain Editor Emeritus Hank Davis. Howdy, Hank. Hello there. Bain Associate Editor Laura Haywood Corey. Hi. Hi. And I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. Uh, we are so excited to have with us, through the magic of electromagnetism, Bain author Sarah A. Hoyt. Hi, Sarah. Hi. And hot stuff neuroscientist Dr. Ted Roberts. Hi, Ted. Hi, Tony. Uh, lots to talk about with YouTube, but first let's get to some news. Hey, look at that. The new eARCs are out for March. An eARC is an interstellar generation ship, correct? That only transports passengers that lack the letter E in their names? No, no. That, what is an eARC, Laura? It's an electronic advanced reader's copy, and these are fresh from the author's hands, uncorrected, and they are available on our website, BainyBooks.com, for the fans who want to read the story raw, straight from the author's mind. These are uncorrected. They're guaranteed to be full of typos. But if you want to read it now, we're happy to mm -hmm. oblige you. Of course. And so, of course, we charge more for them. Yes. Yes. Because we're, we're giving them to you sooner. By the way, Sarah, Noah's Boy uh, should be on its way to that state very soon. Nice. And it is full of typos. I'm here to test. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have some of those fixed by the time uh, by the time it becomes an eARC. Our eARCs for March are the new Burdens of the Dead eARC. This is the sequel to everybody's favorite Much Fall of Blood. Wonderful title by Mercedes Lackey, Eric Flint, and Dave Freer. This is the Heirs of Alexandria series set in uh, an alternate Renaissance where magic works and civilization is at a crossroads. Lots of fun. Captain Benito Valdosta from the previous books is back. It's, it's a great, uh, great read. Also in March, we have an all new entry in Timothy Zahn's long running Cobra series. Now I recently read this one and it's a lot of fun. Jim, can you tell us what a Cobra is, a Cobra warrior? Well, for all you G.I. Joe fans, I'm sorry, no, this is not that Cobra. Uh, in fact, this Cobra dates back before then. Uh, back in the 80s, Tim started his series for us, and it was called the Cobra Trilogy. And what the Cobra Warriors are, are basically the ultimate in infiltration warriors. They're humans who have technological additions to their body. They have servo-enhanced muscles, they have a reinforced skeleton, and even better, They've got finger lasers, and of course, if they really need to kill something big, their legs got uh, uh, an implanted anti-tank laser. And of course, these soldiers are specialized at getting in behind enemy lines and wreaking havoc, the old snoop and poop for you military fans. And when Tim did his original trilogy, he then wandered off and wrote a few, you know, 
number one New York Times bestsellers and some space opera movies about wars and stars and things like that. And then he came back to us and said he'd like to revisit that. And we said, yes, please. And we, of course, had the Cobra War trilogy come out in recent years. And this newest one picks up right at the end of the Cobra War trilogy, starts a whole new trilogy called Cobra Rebellion. And the nice part is you get to see the military action. You get to see the politics being dealt with amongst the humans. And the, in the Cobra War trilogy, of course, the alien troughs come back and uh, invade human space yet again, and we, we defeat them. But in the process, Merrick Moreau, one of the Cobras, uh, son of the heroes from the original trilogy, yes, this is Cobra War, the next generation, and he allows himself to be captured in order to try and infiltrate the troughed empire and try and learn what's going on and help deal with the human slaves that actually have uh, been captured and being held by these aliens. And so uh, it's a whole new adventure, a whole new trilogy. This is the first of those three. And, of course, we have the Cobra Trilogy available on Omnibuy. The Cobra War is available. Uh, so you can catch up to speed or you can pick it up with this one. The Troft are very nasty, and they really deserve what is coming to them in this one. So I want to remind everybody that March print releases are out, including Sarah Hoyt's A Few Good Men, which we will talk about more momentarily. Also, hey, the latest Honor Harrington novel, Shadow of Freedom, is out in March. Bain.com, the heart of fantasy and science fiction, someone once said. Is that true? I think it is. <laughs> want to welcome once again Bain author Sarah A. Hoyt to the podcast. Hi again, Sarah. So let's talk about A Few Good Men, which is out this month, and lots more. But let me give a little background on Sarah before we begin. Correct me if I stumble into error, Sarah. Sarah A. Hoyt was born in Portugal. She graduated from the University of Porto and moved to the U.S. soon after, where she journeyed. Uh, yes, go on. Actually, I got married a year before I finished my degree. I went back and took the final exams uh, over my first anniversary. You, They don't take attendance. You have the, op- the option of just showing up for their final exam. So yeah. I did that. Had you moved to the U.S. already and you were going back to finish yep. up there? Ah. Yep. I'd lived here for a year, which resulted in my almost failing German because I spelled it all like English. Spelling has always been a problem for me. <laughs> well, we have copy editors to fix that, Sarah. It, now, is it true that you majored in English uh, at the University of I majored of in English. In English, minored in German, yes. So you were a language person going into into school. Let me just ask you about your early days. Did you always want to be a novelist? I've read that you uh, you started writing at an early age, that you were a bit of a prodigy. Uh, I decided I wanted to write when I was... I, I decided I wanted to write for a living when I was six because, you know, everyone liked the stuff I wrote and I, I figured it would be easy. Um, so, you know, nearly 30 years later, but anyway... Did uh, do you still have some of those uh, juvenilia around? Maybe we could publish them. <laughs> uh, no, no. Okay. Actually, uh, uh, Mile High embarrassed me one year by putting me on a panel where they wanted you to read juvenilia. Well, even if I had it, it would be in Portuguese. Uh, I used to burn everything every year, though, so I don't have any of it. Wow, that's a pretty good. Uh, didn't have a shredder back then. <laughs> That's a pretty good uh, ritual. I might have to take that one up. 
All right, so let, let me just uh, mention your books. Sarah's books for Bane include the popular Dark Ship series of science fiction novels, Dark Ship Thieves, and then Dark Ship <laughs> Renegades. And Dark Ship Thieves won Prometheus Award. Yeah, the winner of the, the coveted Prometheus Award. And its sequel is up for this year's Prometheus Award. Uh, these are space adventure tales with solid scientific underpinning. They have a, a feel that clearly sort of evokes Heinlein influences, among others, I think. Well, I, I grew up reading Heinlein. I grew up reading a lot of other people, but um, I liked Heinlein's books better. So I spent a lot of time in his world, and it's almost impossible not to be influenced. As we mentioned, that your latest book is A Few Good Men, which is kind of a sequel to Dark Ship Thieves and kind of not. Can you tell us what that could possibly mean? Well, what happened was both Tony Weisskopf and I have decided that, well, the good men of Earth annoyed us, and so they had to go. Um, however, we're the rulers of Earth, for those who haven't read it. And, and we had this phone call, and, you know, it's terrible when women get mad at someone at the same time. We decided they had to go. Now, by Tony, because Tony Weisskopf is publisher here at Bain, by the way. That's who you're referring to. Unfortunately, because, um, Dark ships, the Dark Ship series is kind of locked with Athena's point of view, which wasn't really useful for doing the revolution on Earth, since she's now more concerned with Eden and what's going on there. Um, so, I tried to do the second Dark Ship book from another point of view, and, and Tony told me, no, no, really, no. So, I went and did Athena, but I can't have the revolution on Earth here. And she said, well, you'll just have to mention it or, you know, something. I started writing it, and then there's this, and this is germane, there's this website online written by a student doctor who keeps saying that the people who come in with the most horrible wounds always say they were standing on the corner minding their own business. Mm-hmm. Well, I was standing on the corner minding my own business, when all of a sudden I had this character in my head who was never, never when at the end of Dark Ship Thieves, Athena breaks in to rescue her husband and of course leaves a huge gaping hole on the side of it and the character escapes. And I had him in my head with such a strong narrative voice that I was on my way to a convention that I had to stop and write the first paragraph. That's Lucia's... Ah, it's Lucia's. Lucius Dante Maximilian Kiva, who is the son of good man Kiva. He was kept in solitary for 14 years for a variety of reasons. Uh, that's his escape. He has to go and take over the reins of power. Yeah. Are, are you referring to the, the part that you wrote that just came to you and you had to write it? Is that the escape scene at the beginning of A Few Good Men that you're yes. referring to? That yes. was very powerful. Great scene. Yes, it's it pretty much hit me upside down. Well, the entire novel, I, I know this sounds completely insane to anyone who hasn't written, probably not to people who have written, although I've known a few authors who have never had this happen to them, but I can promise them it will happen sooner or later. Um, the entire novel more or less dictated itself to me. I mean, it's not volitional, volitional on my part. I had to tweak things and edit some things. But it was coming through with the voice and the scenes and the word choice and just pushing itself on me. Is that and why it? Uh, 
Is that why it came out so soon after uh, Dark Ship Renegades? Well, partly that's the reason. Partly I really like that world. So it'll, I'll probably work on it a little more often. Yeah, that's part of it. And I called Tony and I said, I'm afraid this book is two books. And she said, that's okay, we're Bay and we can count. Hank, actually, uh, Hank Davis, uh, editor of here, read your blog. And he has a, he has a question about Uh-oh. the political uh, ramifications that we find in A uh, Few Good Men. Though, though you were very uh, emotionally involved in the recent elections, as was I, and you you had been doing this blog, which was mostly about uh, advice to beginning writers, but then you switched over to uh, reflections on, on uh, the results of the elections. That involved a bit of shifting of gears, and did you seem to lose readers or gain no, readers? No, there, there had always been some reflections on where we were going, and... Uh, Part of it is that it's impossible to write science fiction without what you believe and how you believe history works coming through. Part of it is that I've lived through where I think we're headed in Portugal, so I'm the crazy woman on deck ringing the bell and going, there's a nice one right ahead, people. What is the political story of Portugal? I'm not really up on it. Portugal has always been a mess. It's, it's somewhere between Europe and South America culturally, because South America's political culture comes to a great extent from Rome. And Portugal, Portugal is this tiny country trying to swim through history with this huge iron ball of, of history attached to its ankle, and a lot of things still work the Roman way which means hiring is by patronage. And so Portugal will always default to strongman government, as a matter of course. And it, it's kind of, I, I tend to correct people when they say that the Portuguese regime that was toppled in 75 was fascist. Not because it's not true, but because in the States that means, oh, he was, they were on the side of the axis. And, oh, they had, you know, an anti-Semitic policy. And this wasn't true. But in, in economic policies, it was a state capitalism type of thing. I mean, it was a crony capitalist regime with a strong man at the top. Uh, it was neutral in World War II for good and sufficient reasons. Actually, something I agree with is they were broke. I mean, beyond broke. And they had fascist. Spain right next door, which would invade if they had gone on the side of the Allies. So, but right, sort of a Finlandization process going on there yes. with Spain with Franco next door. Exactly, because it, it's massive, and Portugal throughout its, its history has defined itself as we don't want to be swallowed by Spain. However, after the seventy-five revolution, there was a moment of, of hope. You know, this is going to be them. It reminds me of nothing so much as the Arab Spring. It's oh yay, you know, we can be a modern nation with with everyone else, except it drifted very rapidly to international socialism and Soviet influence. Because it took me till about five years ago to realize this. For the most part, Portugal was fight casualties. 
They wanted Portugal because of the colonies in Africa. That was the entire, which became basically Soviet colonies. They're now snapping out of the, of the, the wreck that this created. But, you know, Portugal was incidental. I mean, it didn't really matter. They wanted these massive plains in Africa. Well, that's, uh, I mean, that is, I can see a lot of that. Now that you bring this, this background in, a lot of that seems to have gone into a few good men and the, uh, especially the, your mules, uh, et cetera, that come from the, uh, from the dark ship books. That is genetically engineered types who, uh, and Earth, which revolt, re- reverts to a strongman sort of semi-fascist government. Yes. Well, I think that, I think that strongman government is the default of humanity and that it takes, because it, it's what most closely resembles the primate tribe's leadership. It's evolutionarily it's our default. Yeah. Well, Thomas Hobbes would certainly agree with you. I just read Noah's Boy, which is the third in the Shifter series. This is a series that you've written that is completely different from the Dark Ship series and is a, um, a contemporary fantasy, an urban fantasy, with people who turn into wear lions, wear tigers, wear dragons especially. And I noticed that uh, one of your your walk-on characters, your red shirts, although he doesn't get killed, is uh, Dr. Ted Roberts, who... We affectionately known as speaker to lab animals as well. Um, I, I'd like to point out, this is fair, I'd like to point out that I, I redshirted him in Dark Ship Renegades as a disease. My best friends I kill many times. Can you, first of all, Sarah, can you give us some insight as to how, the fact is that uh, that while also a friend, he's also a uh, extremely knowledgeable neuroscientist, how knowing such a scientist is useful to you as a writer? It is. It is uh, not exactly true that I go out and, and seek friends who have knowledge I can use. However, they are fascinating people. So if they want to be my friends, I, I cultivate them because I could probably have done the work that, uh, that, that Robert does for me, but it would take me months of research. Well, it's much easier to give him a phone call. Mind you, Indeed. sometimes he has to find me reading so I can understand what he's talking about. And then Robert translates. He's also Robert. <laughs> so what can you tell us about the Dark Ship series, uh, Dr. Ted, Dr. Squeak? Well, you wrote, you wrote us an article. We, by the way, there is, a, there is an article about the science of the Dark Ship series at the Bain.com website and available as a free download at BainEbooks.com that uh, Dr. Ted Roberts wrote. I get very unusual emails from my friends like Sarah. Uh, usually they start off with, I need to kill a character, and I need to do it in a way that nobody else has done it before. Or in the case of the Dark Ship uh, universe, Sarah wanted to have one of, her, one of the characters develop the memories of another person. This turned into a discussion of neuroscience and what actually memory is made up of, and the answer is memory really resides in the connections between the individual brain cells. So that required a story mechanism for how to build those connections, which turned into a discussion of, well, why would such a technique have been developed in the first place? Well, obviously it must be a disease, but since this is, uh, we have a 
genetically engineered Superman, what kind of a disease would result in the type of uh, uh, therapy that would be necessary to rebuild all the connections, restore memory. And hence, I got redshirted as a disease, uh, including many humorous letters back and forth between Sarah and I, in which I played the role of a professor uh, at some obscure university in Scotland trying to explain the uh, um, what this disease was, which also became semi-canon for the uh, for the series for the story. Now we should we should probably say what we should probably say what red shirt means, which uh, not everyone knows. Uh, that's a good idea. It means the same thing as in Star Trek. The um, the character wears the red shirt is going to be killed. And when you're redshirting someone, you're usually redshirting someone who actually... Been a great help to you. You pay them back by killing them off. Uh, yes. Uh, how does it feel to get redshirted? Do you feel a moment when death hits you? At this point, I've only died off stage, uh, not, uh, not in the pages of the book, other than the disease. Other than the disease, um, a character name for me hasn't actually died on the pages, although... In one incident, my name was put on a character that had the shortest lifespan, uh, or was holding the office with the shortest possible lifespan in human history. So I figured then that one was, uh, I was a goner for sure. The interesting thing is that if an author really, really likes you, uh, and you're redshirted, you die an utterly terrible, horrible, such heroic death. Uh, if the author doesn't like you, you die a senseless death. Uh, and so the uh, one of the things that uh, readers should look for is if there is a character that has a name of somebody you realize is a real person and they die a terrible, terrible, terrible death, then the author must really like them. We want to thank Dr. Ted Roberts and Sarah A. Hoyt for being our guest on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for letting me be on. And thank you, Dr. Enjoy. Ted. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. We're continuing our media segment where we discuss television shows, movies, non-book items that purport to entertain uh, that might be of interest to Bain readers. We have with us now on the phone Bain author Lars Walker, author of three Bain books, all now available as e-books, uh, Blood and Judgment, Wolf Time, and Year of the Warrior a romping novel about an alleged priest trying to convert a bunch of Vikings to the ways of God. Is that correct, Lars? That is correct. Hello, nice to have you here. My pleasure. Now, you can well imagine that Lars has some, just by the name perhaps, has some special knowledge about uh, that we could draw on today. We're discussing the History Channel's series Vikings again. For those who aren't familiar with this, this is a fictional series with characters, plot settings, all that kind of stuff that plays on the History Channel on American TV at the moment. The show is about Ragnar Lodbrok, played by Australian actor Travis Fimmel of Calvin Klein ad fame. Others have told me I have no direct knowledge of this. And his family and Viking buddies who set out for a bit of raiding in the West in complete disobedience to evil Earl Haraldson, played by uh, menacing Gabriel Byrne. Ragnar and company make landfall at the English Abbey of Lind Lindisfarne, Lindisfarne, 
and a whole lot of Vikingness ensues. Now, I I've been impressed with the series so far, but I think the acting's pretty good, and the period detail seems to my untutored eyes, at least, to be spot on. But Lars, am I wrong? Well, would you like this uh, brutally or gently? <laughs> Give it to me straight, it's, it's, man. It's very bad. Um, I'm in the Viking reenactor community and participate in discussions on online and uh, that sort of thing. And it was really remarkable to see how much people were looking forward to this and how deeply disappointed they have been. Because these are people who have worked hard to learn about the period and to get their own uh, gear up to up to uh, historical authenticity. And the kind of thing we see on the series, it's more than just, you know, they made this a mistake here or a mistake there. That's understandable. What this looks like is, is um, a kind of a willing, willful choosing <laughs> to ignore uh, things that are very well known and, you know, kind of the basic things. Well, what are the most egregious errors that we're looking at here? Um, well, let's start out with what you just mentioned, the evil Earl Haroldson, which is a silly way to put the name because you don't use titles that way. We don't talk about Queen Windsor. We talk about Queen Elizabeth. You always use the first name with a title. Uh, and Haroldson is a patronymic. It's a last name. He, he runs around, and he... Uh, he kills people. He orders a guy beheaded. He kills a lot of people. Just sort of yeah. whenever the mood strikes him in the series. And there's and there's no there's no uh, backlash from that. Everyone's defense put against his power. This is entirely contrary to actual Viking society. I'm involved in a translating project right now. I'm translating a book of the history of the Viking Age. Uh, for a Norwegian publisher. And this is one of the central things we talk about. The Viking society was a society of law. And, in fact, our English word law is a word we borrowed from the Vikings. And the chieftain did not exercise that kind of power. They had things... Uh, Thing with the capital. Yeah, tell us. Assembly. Yeah, that was that because the when I saw the thing in the first episode, my my first thought is this is very anti-democratic, and I always thought that the big thing about the things, which is uh, the gathering of the of the men, correct, um, is yeah. that it, it's a democratic gathering, and that they were pretty much you know you could say whatever you wanted at a thing and get away with it. You're precisely right. Uh, the principle that the law is king, the principle that of the rule of law, is something that in part we get from the Vikings in our own tradition. The chieftain certainly had power, and he certainly exercised power, but he couldn't use it uh, without the consent of the governed. They had a ruler like an earl, a jarl, uh, a hairser, uh, some places they were called kings, they their their titles were inherited, but they also had to be accepted by the free men at the things. They had to be voted on, and if they didn't toe the line, if they tried to overstep the law, they could be uh, cast out. And when they were cast out, they were generally ki killed. So they didn't exercise that kind of of power. That is something which is entirely wrong 
about this series, and it's troublesome. And what did you think about the um, what did you think about the portrayal of the women? I was um, particularly. I'd, I'd like to mention once again that I that uh, Canadian actress Catherine Winnick, who does strike me as a most beautiful Viking, whether she's period or not, she's the wife Lagerth, the wife of uh, of Ragnar, and she's she's sort of portrayed as one of the boys, a tough girl who constantly fights and kills guys who are trying to rape her and such. And it seems like that women's place in this uh, old Scandinavian society was was much more subtle and more powerful than uh, it's being portrayed in the series. Is this correct? Well, now you're going to get me in a little controversy here. Uh, there is a lot of dispute about this. It's important to know that the women, women in the Viking Age had rights. They had an important part. Uh, part to play in society and in the family. The woman was the CEO of the family farm, which is one of the reasons they generally stayed home. The man would go off and raid and bring back plunder. The woman would stay home and take care of the crops and take care of uh, weaving and, and making uh, butter and cheese and stuff like that, which was equally important to survival. And there was, to a large degree, uh, a real... Uh, uh, division of labor there. The, uh, there is controversy over how much women fought. Most reenactment groups have women who fight. My own reenactment group has women who fight. And a lot of people are very strong on that. Personally, I don't think it was as common as it is often described. And uh, there's some archaeological evidence graves with swords in them, women's graves with swords in them. That's interesting. But in the historical sagas, which is the sagas written closer to the time of the events, there's no mention of women or warriors. Well, what should we, all right, uh, what should we, if we are going to continue to, uh, to follow the series, what sorts of grains of salt should we bring to our viewing? What should we, um, what could we get out of it that's good? Uh, or is there anything, and, and what should we know to dismiss? Oh, boy. Um, you know, we have covered, we've already kind of gone to the heart of it. This the, the things we've discussed are really kind of central to the story, and they're wrong. Another thing that's central to the story and wrong, and I want people to be aware of it, is the whole narrative is based on the idea that the Scandinavians in the 8th century, which is what this seems to be because it involves the raid on Lindisfarne. Mm -hmm. it's, which was late 700s, correct, in, historically. Right. They, the idea that they knew nothing of the British Isles. The British Isles were just legendary to them because they were across the great trackless sea and they'd never heard of them. Yeah, it's a, there is nothing to the West, he keeps saying. And, and of course, basically, clan relatives of those very people settled England. Precisely. Well, um, so our overall assessment is perhaps a thumbs down here, then. Everyone, almost everyone I know who is involved in Viking reenactment, who started watching it, they say again and again, they watch it a couple of times, and they say, I'm done with it. I can't handle it anymore. It is, and, you know, we really wanted this. We really wanted it to be good. We got 
reenactors all over the world with authentic equipment, happy to be extras. We got dozens of Viking ships sailing all over the world, accurate replicas, unlike this one, which puts the steering oar on the left side of the ship, the port side, even though starboard, our word starboard, come, goes back to the Vikings, it means steering board. That's where the Viking war always ha has been. The fact that they put it on the port side, it's impossible that they could have built a replica without doing, without reading some stuff about it. And this is the first thing you learn. Oh, dear. So, well, uh, well, we'll, yeah. uh, we'll, hopefully we'll wait for a really good uh, Viking show to come out and, and to do this right. And we'll call you back when we do, um, and perhaps before. Well, but, I look forward to it. Well, thanks so much, Lars Walker, author of Year of the Warrior and other great science fiction, fantasy, and historical novels. Uh, you can get his ebooks at baneebooks.com and check out his further work at larswalker.com. Thanks so much, Lars. Well, thank you. And now we continue with our wonderful audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This excerpt from Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. I've been an Audible subscriber for years and I love the service. So here's what's gone before. In Chapter 1 of Shadow of Freedom, we opened with a drone strike on a possible insurgent on the planet Halkirk in the Loomis system. Loomis is a star system under the thumb of the autocratic Solarian League. Things don't look good for the party of local partisans who oppose Solarian occupation of the system. This group, the Loomis Liberation League, has been forced to give up on a political solution and become a force for rebellion. Another strike on the same day takes out a Loomis Liberation League leader, try saying that five times, that the secret organization can ill afford to lose. A long-hoped-for shipment of powerful arms has not come through, and Liberation League leader Aaron McFadzine has to admit that without outside aid, and soon, her rebels will lose the fight for a free Loomis. Here's David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 2. Chapter 2 How much longer do you expect this crap to go on? Captain Francine Vanelli's tone was harsh. I've got better things to do with my time than sit here in orbit killing a bunch of backwoods ground grubbers, and my people don't like it. She glowered at the neatly dressed civilian on the other side of the briefing room table. They don't like it at all. For that matter, neither do I. And it's not like there aren't enough wheels coming off at the moment that I can't find plenty of other more worthwhile things to worry about. I don't know how much longer, Captain. Frinkello Osborne replied as calmly and reasonably as he could. I wish I did. And while we're being so frank with each other, I wish you weren't here doing this either. He shook his head, his expression even more disgusted than Vanelli's. It's like using a hammer to crack an egg, or maybe more like spanking a baby with an axe. Finelli's blue eyes narrowed, and she sat back in her chair. 
She'd dealt with more Office of Frontier Security personnel in her career than she could have counted, certainly a lot more of them than she could have wished. Too many of them, in her experience, were entirely in favor of using hammers on eggs, if only to discourage the next chicken from getting out of line. Of course, as a mere advisor to President Elsa McMinn's Loomis Prosperity Party administration, not a full-fledged system or sector commissioner, Osborne might still be far enough down the food chain to believe there were more important things in the universe than his own bank balance. Or maybe he's just smart enough to realize what KEWs are likely to do to the source of his bank balance, she reminded herself. I wonder how many hectares of silver oak we've turned into cinders so far. She kept her mental grimace from reaching her expression and glanced at the spectacular live feed from the exterior view projected on the briefing room's smart wall while she considered that depressing question. Her squadron, the battlecruiser Hoplite, the light cruiser Yenta McElvena, and the destroyers Abati and Lunette, had been improvised on very little notice when Loomis's request for assistance came in. Now her ships orbited the planet Hulkirk, the Loomis system's primary inhabited planet, and the direct visual of the smart wall was magnificent. Indeed, under other circumstances, the captain, who was something of a connoisseur of planetary oddities, would probably have enjoyed her visit to the star system. Unlike the majority of systems, Loomis had two planets smack in the middle of the G7 primary's liquid water zone. In fact, Hulkirk and its sister planet Thurso were not only in the liquid water zone, but orbited a common center of mass seven light minutes from the star as they made their way around it. Yet while they might be sisters, they were far from twins. Hulkirk was all greens and browns, especially browns, with far less blue than Vanelli was accustomed to seeing since 60% of its surface was dry land. Some of it, like the continental interiors, was very dry land, as a matter of fact, although the smaller mountainous continents of Stroma and Stronze were quite pleasant. In fact, they were actually on the damp side, thanks to ocean currents and prevailing wind patterns, and even small continents were very large pieces of real estate. Hoy and Westray, which between them accounted for better than 70% of Hulkirk's total land area, were another story entirely, of course. Vanelli understood exactly why the LPP had established its re-education camps on Westray. Thurzo was a very different proposition, a gleaming, gorgeous sapphire of a world. Over 90% of its surface was water, and the widely scattered archipelagos, which were nominally dry land, had to cope with tidal surges that reminded the captain more of tsunamis than anything most planets would have called tides. Not too surprising, she supposed, when Thurso's moon was 3% more massive than old Earth herself. Weather was interesting on Thurso as well, and it wasn't too surprising that the planet's population was tiny compared to Hulkirk's. On the other hand, Thurso's gargantuan fisheries produced a startling tonnage of gourmet seafood which commanded extraordinary prices from core world epicures. Probably not extraordinary enough to have attracted Star Enterprise Initiative's Unlimited's attention to Loomis by itself, but enough to have made the star system a worthwhile trading stop, even without Hulkirk. The asteroid resource extraction industries and the gas mining operations, centered on the star system's trio of gas giants, undoubtedly helped cover SEIU's operating expenses, too, but the real treasure of the Loomis system lay in Hulkirk's groves of silver oak. 
Francine Vanelli was a professional spacer, accustomed to compact living quarters aboard ship or orbital habitats. She didn't think in terms of planetary housing or the kinds of huge, sprawling domiciles wealthy dirtsiders seemed to think were necessary. For that matter, she didn't really understand the fascination natural materials exercised on some people's minds. Durability, practicality, and appearance were far more important to her than where the materials in question came from, and wood was a pretty piss-poor construction material where starships were concerned. Despite that, even she had been struck by the sheer beauty of Hallkirk Silver Oak. The dense-grained, beautifully colored, beautifully patterned wood was like a somatic hollow sculpture, deliberately designed to soothe and stroke the edges of a frayed temperament. Something about its texture, about the half-seen, half-imagined highlights that gleamed against its dark cherrywood color like true silver deep inside the grain, was almost like the visual equivalent of barely heard woodwinds playing softly at the back of one's mind or a gentle, relaxing massage. Just sitting in a room paneled with it was almost enough to make a woman forget why she was so pissed off with people like the Loomis system government. She supposed she shouldn't be surprised that the price it commanded in core world markets as a medium for sculptors and furniture designers as well as building material was truly astronomical. Between them, Loomis's resources would have been more than enough to provide the system's population a comfortable standard of living, except, of course, for the tiny problem that the system population didn't control them. Not anymore, anyway. For the last 45 T years, that control had belonged to Star Enterprise Initiatives Unlimited, headquartered in the Lucastra system, only 70 light years from Sol. SEIU had secured the typical transstellar 100 year leases from the LPP, and that, by one of the tortuous and circuitous paths with which Vanelli and Frontier Fleet had become only too familiar, explained why she and her ships were in orbit around Hulkirk at this particular moment. Her gaze swiveled back from the visual display to Osborne, and she pursed her lips. How the hell did it get this bad? Her own question surprised her because it wasn't the one she'd meant to ask. It wasn't exactly the most tactful way she could have phrased it either, but the disgust in Osborne's answering grimace wasn't really directed at her. It wasn't hard at all, he said. Not with an idiot like Zagorski calling the shots. I thought we'd been called in by President McMinn and Secretary McQuarrie, Vanelli said sardonically. President McMinn is so far past it by now that I doubt she seals her own shoes in the morning. Osborne's reply was caustic enough to dissolve asbestos. McCrimmon's the one who really calls the shots inside the LPP these days. He'd probably retire McMinn to a nice, quiet geriatric home, or an even quieter cemetery, if he could. But she's still the party's beloved leader. One of those little problems that arise when politicians encourage personality cults. Vanelli nodded. Elsa McMinn and her husband had been the leaders of the Prosperity Party when it seized power in a brief bloody coup. But Keith McMinn had been dead for over 20 T years, and by now, Elsa was well past 70, without the benefit of prolong. Vice President Tyler McCrimmon was less than half her age, 
but although he was widely acknowledged as her inevitable successor, she was still the party's public face. He might be the power behind the throne, yet he needed her to give him legitimacy. And he also needed Senga Macquarie and her unified public safety force to prop up the entire Prosperity Party edifice. Fortunately for McCrimmon, Macquarie was still a relative newcomer to the cabinet. Her predecessor and mentor, Lachlan McHendry, had been one of McMinn's old comrades until his recent death due to unspecified medical problems. She needed him as much as he needed her, at least for now. Part of the problem, Osborne continued, is that the LPP didn't make a clean sweep of the McRory's after the revolution. A miscalculation on the McMinn's part, but it's a little hard to blame them for that one, really. He grimaced. Tavis III probably meant well, but he'd never been a strong king, and most people didn't really seem to mind when he voluntarily abdicated in the party's favor. I expect Keith and Elsa didn't want to risk generating sympathy for the dynasty after the fact by having him assassinated, since, as near as I can tell, he died of genuinely natural causes shortly after the revolution. But they didn't prune back his family, either, probably because Clan McRory had so many relatives scattered around the system— Oh, they banned them from politics, such as they were and what there was of them, and kept a close eye on them, but they didn't really go after them or encourage them to emigrate. And as long as things went reasonably well, that didn't matter all that much. But after SEIU moved in and started turning the screws on the locals, a lot of people started remembering the good old days and good King Tavis. Of course, by that time he was safely dead, but his son was still around. And he started conniving to regain power, did he? No. Osborne shook his head. Or not as far as I've ever been able to discover, anyway. There were enough people who wanted him to by then, but it looks to me like he was smart enough to realize he wasn't going to accomplish anything through any sort of open reform process, and that he'd only get a lot of people killed if he tried something more energetic. Unfortunately for him, that didn't prevent Macquarie's predecessor from arranging a fatal traffic accident for him 15 years ago. Got his older son in the same accident, too. The bad news, from their perspective, was that they missed his younger son, Manas. The good news was that he's no idiot. He understood exactly what had happened to his father and his brother, and he stayed as far away from politics as he could for as long as he could, which was working out just fine, until SEIU promoted Zagorski to system manager. He grimaced, and Vanelli felt herself grimace back. As a general rule, her sympathy for Frontier Security's minions was distinctly limited. In this case, however, she'd had the dubious pleasure of meeting Nyatui Zagorski shortly after her arrival in system, and she hadn't enjoyed the experience. What is his problem? she asked. Disappointment. Osborne replied. He expected better than he got, and he wasn't happy with the consolation prize. Seems like a pretty sweet deal for him to me, Vanelli observed, waving one hand at the planets on the smart wall. Of course, I'm only a naval officer. My perspective may be a bit more limited than his, him being such a mover and shaker of the universe and all. Osborne's lips quirked at her ironic tone, but he shook his head. That's part of his problem, really. 
I think he sees himself as exactly that, a mover and a shaker, and he feels deprived of a platform worthy of his profound talents. Unfortunately for him, SEIU's not one of the major transstellars. It's more of a middleweight, and Loomis is worthwhile, but it isn't in the same category as one of the real pot-of-gold propositions, and Loomis isn't the top rung of even its ladder. Worse, Zagorski was assistant system manager in Del Vecchio, which is SEIU's crown jewel, for ten years. I'm pretty sure he expected to move up to system manager there when his boss got recalled to the home office, which would finally have made him a really big fish in his own personal pond. Only somebody with better family connections got Del Vecchio, and he got Loomis as a consolation prize. I think that really pissed him off, and he arrived in get-rich-quick mode. He wants to squeeze as much as he can out of Loomis as fast as he can, partly for what he can skim off the top, but also, I think, because he's hoping that a spike in system revenues on his watch may still get him promoted to something even better. Great, Vanelli snorted harshly. If I had a credit for every time one of these assholes screwed the pooch out here trying to look good for the home office, I could buy Hoplite as my private yacht and retire. You probably could, Osborne agreed. In this case, he decided to raise the quota on Silver Oak. In fact, he doubled it. Then he raised it again. There's a lot of timberland on Hallkirk, but it's not unlimited, and the Hallkirkians know it. He's basically clear-cutting their most valuable planetary resource, and they don't like it. He doesn't care, of course. Even at the rate he's going through them, there are enough stands of Silver Oak to keep him in business for another ten or twenty years— and he plans on being long gone by then. Vanelli felt as disgusted as Osborne looked. Slash-and-burn tactics like Zagorsky's were entirely too common in the Verge, and they accounted for at least half of the Solarian League Navy's headaches. When the new logging policies came in, a lot of people who'd been willing to keep their heads down rather than attract the UPS's attention started remembering good King Tavis a lot more affectionately. Osborne continued. Monas McRory may not have cherished any political ambitions, but his nephew, Ragnall, his older brother's son, knew McCrimmon and Macquarie weren't likely to take his word for it. So, without mentioning it to anyone, including Monas, he started organizing the McRory Militia. As far as I can tell, it was supposed to be a purely defensive move on his part— I think he just wanted to put together something tough enough to make Macquarie think twice about assassinating his uncle the way McHendry assassinated his father and his grandfather. Unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. The level of unhappiness really started spiking about two years ago, and Macquarie began seeing conspirators under every bed in Elgin. I'm pretty sure she was deliberately exaggerating in her cabinet reports as a way to suck in more resources for UPS, but that didn't mean she was completely wrong either. In fact, he sounded like someone who disliked what he was admitting. My own sources indicate that someone here on Hallkirk had actually begun some serious organizing and established some out-system contacts for small arms and some heavy weapons— it's a fairly recent development, and I still haven't been able to nail down exactly whose idea it was. It wasn't the McCrory's, though. I do know that much. 
By now, three or four different groups have come out of the woodwork under the umbrella of McLean's Loomis Liberation League's provost. But that happened later, after Macquarie realized there really was someone here in Loomis who was genuinely interested in shooting back and decided she'd better nip it in the bud. She leapt to the conclusion that it had to be the McCrory's, unfortunately, and she tried to take Manus into protective custody. And that, Captain Vanilli, was when the shit hit the fan and I put in a call for someone like you. You couldn't find a smaller sledgehammer? Vanilli asked caustically, and the OFS officer shrugged. I didn't want a sledgehammer at all. Unfortunately, Zagorski didn't leave me much option. He wants results fast results, and he's got a big enough marker with somebody further up the chain than me to get them. I guess what I object to the most is how freaking stupid this all is, Vanilli said. On the other hand, I suppose I should be used to stupidity by now. There's enough of it lying around anyway, Osborne agreed. I don't recall seeing a more spectacular example of it lately, though. He shook his head, and Vanilli realized there was more than just disgust in his eyes. There was anger and even regret. I've assisted in, even officiated over, some pretty ugly things in my time, Captain, the OFS officer told her. It comes with the territory, and I've got to admit, the pay is pretty good. But sometimes, sometimes it isn't good enough. And this is one of those times. That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 2. Join us next time as we continue our journey through this marvelous, best-selling novel. And that's it for the podcast today. Thanks to Jim Manns, Laura Haywood Corey, Hank Davis, and composer Ruth Judkowitz, who created March to the Stars, our rousing podcast theme. Glorious thanks and fireworks to Sarah A. Hoyt and to neuroscientist Dr. Ted Roberts. Thanks to Viking expert Lars Walker and to Audible.com. Please join us next time and keep reaching for the stars.